0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts, Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, we'll be looking at verses 19 through 26. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 26. Have you ever wondered, can God use me? Well, not only can God use you, but God intends to use you. He purposes to use you. It is his will that you be a vessel through which he can work, through which he can accomplish his purposes. And as a part of the body of Christ, there are three ways we will see in this text this morning that reveal how the Lord desires to use you to build up his church. So if you have found your place in Acts chapter 11... Allow me to read verses 19 through 26. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and, and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with a resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man, and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. This is the word of the Lord. So this section picks back up where chapter 8 left off. And in verse 4 back in chapter 8, we read there, Therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. If you remember the persecution in Jerusalem, following the murder of Stephen, caused many believers, most of the believers, to flee the city, and they took the gospel with them. And so we saw Philip going to Samaria, and then we read of Saul's conversion, and after that we witnessed most recently Peter's struggle and finally surrender to proclaim Jesus to Cornelius and to his household. So here in chapter 11, verse 19, we're brought back around to the fact that there are many Jewish followers of Jesus who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen. And we read in the second part of verse 19, they made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Phoenicia was a coastal region near Israel. Cyprus was an island off the coast, and Antioch, there in the north, was a city. All with uh, sizable Jewish populations, all Roman areas. And within these areas, the scattered followers of Jesus shared the word. They shared the word of God, but they spoke, as we read in verse 19, to no one except to Jews alone. They spoke the word to no one except to Jews alone. So after all that we saw with Peter's struggle to take the gospel to the Gentile Cornelius, uh, this shouldn't surprise us as far as what we're reading here. What does surprise us is uh, verse 20. It says, but there were some of them men of Cyprus, And Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And so, first of all, we observe that when it comes to building up his church, God often uses unnamed people. God often uses unnamed people. We are not told who these men from the island of Cyprus or from this northern African region of Cyrene are. We're not told who they are. They took it upon themselves to go to Antioch. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire after Rome and Alexandria. So some historians put the population of Antioch at this time at around half a million. It was referred to as Antioch the Beautiful because of its, its architecture. And it's what we would consider maybe a cosmopolitan city. Think uh, cutting edge, trendy, Manhattan, uh, New York kind of a situation, New York City. It boasted this ethnically diverse populace of Greeks and Jews, even people from the Orient and, of course, Romans. And Antioch also had a reputation for very loose living and lax morals. Prostitution that was associated with uh, religious cults was widely practiced, and it centered around a shrine about five miles south of the city. So in other words, it was a perfect place to proclaim the gospel. Ethnic diversity, moral decay, and a large population ensured that there were plenty of opportunities to be taken advantage of, and that is exactly what the unknown followers of Jesus from Cyprus and Cyrene did. No one told these Jewish believers, apparently, that they weren't supposed to share the gospel with Gentiles. But that's what they did. Verse 20, they began speaking to the Greeks. The Greeks, people who lived according to Greek culture and Greek customs. Now some of them might have been converts to Judaism, or at least sympathetic toward the Jewish people like Cornelius was, but not all of them. These were non-Jews. So let's take note of three things about these evangelists, these unknown evangelists, who shared with the Greeks. First of all, no one sanctioned their ministry no one sanctioned their ministry and when i say no one i mean i mean no man we don't read anywhere that the church leaders in jerusalem or the apostles sent these men at this point the the church hierarchy is not even aware of their activities and that makes us nervous we're not too sure about just anyone striking out on their own they aren't vetted they might say the wrong thing. They might not have any documentation, much less you know certificates of ordination, all that good stuff. Unofficial, unsanctioned men. They might mess the whole thing up. But thank God that he is fully capable of guiding others and of even blessing their efforts. Thank God that, that he doesn't need my approval or yours if the Lord has called them. And we know that the Lord was behind their efforts because of what we read in verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them. So the sign that that God approved their efforts, approved the efforts of these unnamed men was that many people in Antioch got saved. You know, we might deny a person's credentials, but we'd be foolish to deny the results. I'm thinking about a lady named Gladys Elward Uh, who we talked about during Vacation Bible School last week with the children. She was a missionary to China. But before she was a missionary in China, she simply felt a call to go to China. Well, she was working as a housemaid in England in the 1930s. And so she had a call to China, felt like the Lord was was calling her to be a missionary. She went to apply to the most prominent missionary society at that time, thinking, hey, you know, this is great. Everything's going to work out. And they turned her application down. They said that she didn't have the, the right education, she didn't have the right connections, that she'd probably have a difficult time learning the Chinese language, and she just didn't fit into their idea of what a missionary should be. Well, not to be discouraged, she just kept working as a maid and, and saved her money up for many, many months and uh, bought a plane ticket, uh, not a plane ticket, a train ticket a train ticket to China uh, across Europe and Russia, including Siberia, many-month-long train trip, and um, she eventually made it there, but no official sanction. She was unknown. She was an unknown person. If God is leading you to proclaim his word, don't wait on any official sanction or recognition to do this. This whole idea of of pastors, the whole idea that, that pastors share the word and everyone else merely sits and listens is foreign to the New Testament. My job is not to do your job. My job is to equip you to do your job. Ephesians 4.12 says, And he, that is God, gave some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service. My job is to equip you to do what? To do the work of the service. I'm doing the work of the service too, but I'm not doing it alone. Don't wait for approval to proclaim the Lord Jesus. Take what you know, whether a little or a lot. And every one of you knows a lot compared to a lot of other people in the world. Whether a little or a lot, take it and go do it. Secondly, the names of these men are not recorded. They're not recorded. Obviously, the Holy Spirit did not see fit to let us know through the writer of Acts, Luke, who these men were. The text just says, men of Cyprus and Cyrene. Their identities were not important. Now, I do not mean that they are not important. They certainly are, but their names are hidden from us. But I guarantee you, they are fully known to God. Now, we see in this text that Barnabas and Saul, their names, and that's okay. However, just because there's no recognition of these men who headed to Antioch with the gospel does not mean that God did not recognize them. Our culture is obsessed with names. It's obsessed on, on, on what over what the name represents, which is which is fame. If you have a name that is well known, you've arrived. You, you've made a name for yourself, whether through music or sports or a social media influencer or this, this recent phenomenon of, of being famous just because you're famous, like I think a few years ago about the Kardashians, are they famous? because they were famous. I mean, what is that? So you make a name for yourself, maybe just simply as a person who has an outrageous amount of money, whatever the case might be, everyone craves recognition, which is really what popularity is all about, is it not? Being recognized, being known, being admired, being respected. And the only way that happens is if people what? If they know your name, and we're told a lot of names in the Bible, But keep in mind, most biblical characters made as many mistakes as they did anything righteous. Some more so. And the fact is, the vast majority of what God has done down throughout the centuries, he has done with nameless individuals. Gladys Elward. We probably shouldn't know her name. In the eyes of even the mission society, in the eyes of much of the church, she was unnamed. She just struck out on her own. But God took care of her. And God, not to get into it this morning, did some amazing things through her life and through her ministry. Rescuing over 100 children during the Japanese-Chinese war, just one of those. Walking for, for many, many, many days over the mountains to deliver these children safely. We wouldn't know about her except that some people who knew of her story felt that it would encourage us as the church and encourage future missionaries. And so they told her story. But Gladys Elward, who's that? Unnamed, unknown by the world. But you know what? Those that are unnamed, they're not nameless to God. But we, for the most part, will not know their names until eternity reveals them. So never be concerned if you're not recognized in this life. Because all this life can give you, all it can give you is fleeting popularity. And You know, if you want that, then there's your reward. You got it. There it is. If that's what you pursue and you obtain it, we've got your reward. Some of the most lonely people in the world are the most famous people in the world. They're at the top, and the top's a very lonely place to be. God can give you a name that will be recognized and honored throughout eternity. Thirdly, these men, they were preaching the Lord Jesus. They were preaching the Lord Jesus. And you say, yeah, isn't that what they're supposed to be doing? It is. But here's what I want you to take note of. When Peter and the other apostles up to this point in the book of Acts, when they proclaimed the gospel, they primarily spoke of Jesus as the Christ. Christ is the Greek form, not to get too complicated here, but the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah, Christ, Messiah. Jesus Christ is Jesus the Messiah. And the reason that Peter and the apostles did that is because they were speaking to who? To a a, a Jewish audience who were expecting the Messiah. They were expecting the chosen one that was promised throughout the Old Testament. And so when talking to a Jewish audience, Jesus of Nazareth was the one anointed by God. He was the one promised to deliver Israel. However, to a Gentile, Israel's hope meant nothing. The word Messiah, Christ, didn't mean anything. They didn't read the Old Testament. They were not expecting a deliverer. And so Jesus is proclaimed to these Greeks in verse 20 as the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus. And Lord was a common title. It was widely used in the ancient religious world. Many people, many people were seeking to find a divine Lord or lowercase g God who could grant them some kind of salvation and guarantee them some form of, of immortality. And so they looked for lords and masters within cults and within pagan systems. Lord was a title of respect, of importance, And so even when used to refer to an emperor, to a king, it meant that 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 leader was a, a god of sorts, powerful and influential, able to determine people's fate by his decrees, by his words. The early Christians, that's why they had such a problem saying Caesar is Lord, because Caesar was not Lord, not to them. So essentially, these men in our text were saying, look, Jesus is the way to salvation, the guarantor of salvation, and the one who offers immortality. And that is something that clicked with a person steeped in Greek culture and in Greek ideas. They preached the Lord Jesus. So this is a whole new phase for the advance of the church. This is a new mission field. The evangelists, these unnamed evangelists, they're trying to present the gospel in such a way that their audience can understand And what does that mean for you? Well, it means that you do not have to be sent to go out and tell people about Jesus. No church has to give you permission to do that. No pastor has to sanction you to be a witness because you're already sent by God. Jesus, words, John, 20, 21. As the Father sent me, I also send you. As the Father sent me, I also send you, that means that you've already been sent. Simply by the fact that you have received news that you are now obligated to go tell. So go do it. Don't wait for marching orders. You've already got them. It also means that your name is not important. Yes, it's important to God, but it doesn't matter if man ever recognizes your efforts or not. The test is not the test of time the test is the test of eternity and finally you need to faithfully represent Jesus to the audience before you these unnamed men they presented Jesus as lord and that both described who he is and it connected with the listeners connected with them we should do the same be faithful to the truth of Jesus as found in the word but communicate it, try to communicate it in such a way that your listeners understand. And what was the outcome of the preaching? Verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So God blessed the efforts of the unnamed. He used them to build up his church. God also used a man named Barnabas. So secondly, we observed that when it comes to building up his church, God uses encouragement. First, we saw God uses unnamed people. Now God uses encouragement. You know, the church in Jerusalem, it must have learned its lesson well from Peter. Because instead of sending some folks down to check things out in Antioch to make sure that it was the Holy Spirit moving and not some other spirit moving, they just went ahead and sent Barnabas off. Verse 22. They did not hesitate this time to assist these new believers. And they sent a man whom they could trust. They sent Barnabas, and we've met him before. Arriving in Antioch, Barnabas, he observes what's going on, and he immediately realizes that God is at work. Verse 23, he witnessed the grace of God. What a phrase, the grace of God, something that maybe we just read right over and don't even think about it. The grace of God. What is grace? Grace is undeserved favor. God is showing undeserved, unearned favor to these believers in Antioch. And what does that look like? Well, for them, it looks like faithfulness. We're only faithful to God because he is first and always faithful to us. So when a church invites the moving of the Holy Spirit in their midst, they will be faithful to the truth and to one another. And that's what's taking place here. And how do we know that faithfulness is what Barnabas saw among them? We know it because of verse 23. It says, He rejoiced and began to encourage them with all with a resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. Barnabas encouraged the believers in Antioch to remain true. To remain in a condition means that you are already in that condition, right? If I tell you to remain where you are that means that you were there already, or it wouldn't make sense for me to tell you to remain there. If I tell you to remain seated, that implies that you are already sitting. And so when Barnabas encouraged the believers to remain true to the Lord, we know that they were already in the condition of being true, that is, being faithful. And if you recall, Barnabas, what's his nickname? The Son of Encouragement. You only get a nickname like that if it is apparent that you are an encourager local pastor comes to mind when I when I read the son of encouragement, a man that that's gifted in a lot of areas. but when I think about him, I don't think about his preaching or his teaching. I think that when I talk to him very often and leave his presence, I just feel encouraged. He's an encourager. That's the sense that you get from him because encouragement is oxygen to the soul. A word of encouragement makes the difference very often between a between a good day, In a bad day. Between joy and despair. Between, in a way, life and death. Listen to Proverbs 18 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Barnabas possessed a tongue that spoke life. And we all know, we all know what it's like to be on the other end of a tongue that speaks discouragement. It's deadly to the soul. It's deadly which is why we must never underestimate the power of our words to build people up or to tear them down. Now, you don't have to have the gift of encouragement to encourage others. You don't get off the hook this morning. In fact, every Christian is called to be an encourager. Listen to Hebrews 3.13. But encourage one another day after day. As long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We are each, each commanded to encourage one another, not just every now and then, but every day. Let me give you a definition of encouragement. To inspire with hope, courage, or confidence. To give support, to stimulate, to spur on we each crave and need encouragement. We each need to be inspired with hope and courage and confidence. We each need to know that we have the support of our brothers and sisters in whatever season we're passing through. It's it's so easy, if you think about it, to speak words of encouragement. But it is, unfortunately, easier to simply not take the time to do it. Last week, a, a friend of mine Two or three times popped in my head that I should send a text to him. And it's not that I didn't want to. Actually, I did. I just didn't take the two or three minutes to, to do it. I thought, well, I'll do it later. And, uh, and and I failed to do it. And he contacted me out of the blue, I believe on Thursday. And uh, he, he was doing well. He's just catching up with me. but But I realized that that was, that was the prompting of the Holy Spirit. I, I had needed to send him a text before he contacted me, and, and maybe at that time he needed a word of encouragement. But that, that's all it takes. Two or three minutes. Easy to do, but unfortunately easier to not do it. But the reason that the writer of Hebrews gives us for encouraging one another daily is so that none of us will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That is amazing. Think about the power of encouragement. When I take the time to encourage you to remain faithful, your heart remains soft toward the Lord. That's powerful. In Nigeria, we would, we would go nearly six months with hardly any rain, and, and the ground, it would become as hard as pavement. There was not even any dew in the mornings during the height of the dry season. It, it's Pretty bizarre to walk outside before the sun comes up with your sandals on, walking through the high grass and your feet not even to get wet. That's how dry it was. So when the first rains arrived, the ground, it was it was unable to soak up the rainfall. It was just like, almost like flash flooding. You'd have rain filling holes and, and ditches and, and, and dry creek beds. But it wasn't until the third or the fourth rain that the ground was really able to start soaking that water in. The heart is like soil. That's what Jesus said. It can be soft. It can be hard. But the longer it goes without receiving encouragement, the harder the heart becomes. Nothing grew during the dry season. Everything just remained stagnant. No moisture could get to any seeds that were in the ground. But as soon as that ground softened up just a little bit, It was almost overnight. Lush, green lights just exploded across the dry and the brown landscape. When there is no encouragement, there is no life. Only death. Words of encouragement that have the ability to shift the focus of your heart from the deceitfulness of sin to faithfulness toward God. Think about the power in that. And that is what Barnabas had to offer to the Antioch believers, encouragement. And so God will use you in the lives of your brothers and sisters if you will be mindful of the powerful tool of encouragement that he has placed in your hands, in each of your hands. And of course, I mean, of course your life needs to back up your words. The reason that Barnabas was such a powerful presence was, verse 24, that he was a good man. It's interesting, Barnabas is the only person in the book of Acts who is specifically called good. Goodness is a character trait. One writer described it like this. Good people refuse to break their principles to achieve their desired goals. Good people are principled people. It doesn't matter where they're placed. It doesn't matter what temptation they face. Good people will not compromise their integrity simply to make something happen. And it was the integrity and the wholesomeness of Barnabas' own life that gave his words power and made them effective. And so it will be with you too. Let the encouragement that comes out of your mouth be seconded by the the goodness of your life. And the Lord will use you powerfully in the lives of others. It also tells us Barnabas was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. The two, the Holy Spirit and faith. They go hand in hand. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Interesting contrast, isn't it? We have getting drunk over here with being filled with the Spirit over here. And Paul has this, has this contrast. He wants to make this point that he wants to make in Ephesians 5.18. Well, one reason that being drunk is contrasted with the Holy Spirit is because when you were drunk, it is the alcohol that controls you. But when you're filled with the Spirit, on the other hand, it is the Spirit that controls you. It's a matter of control. Another reason drunkenness and filling of the Spirit are contrasted side by side is because both are conditions that call for a decision. You don't accidentally get filled with the Spirit any more than you accidentally get drunk. Drinking alcohol to excess is a choice, and so is being filled with the Spirit. Now, that may go against what you've heard. Most Christians believe or have been taught that being filled with the Spirit is something that they have very little to do with or can do anything about. And that it only happens by God's choice and in God's time. But that is not what we read in Ephesians 5.18. Being filled with the Spirit is not something that may or may not happen. It is actually a command to be acted upon. Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. So how do you make the choice to be filled with the Spirit? Well, we just read it in Acts eleven twenty four. It says Barnabas was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. You, like Barnabas, experience the Holy Spirit's activity in your life to the extent that you trust God, to the extent that you exercise faith. Barnabas was probably unaware that the Holy Spirit was noticeable. And effective through him most of the time you are the last one to know when God is using you and that's a good thing that's a good thing but trusting God is a choice and the and and the extent to which you trust the Holy Spirit to do his work in you and through you to that extent will you be used to accomplish God's will in the lives of others just don't expect to know that it's even happening So what was the result of the encouragement that Barnabas gave to the church in Antioch? Verse 24, second part. Considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. Considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. What a testimony to the power of encouragement. So as you encourage another person, you not only keep them from a sin-hardened heart, you are also used to bring others to the Lord as well. Think about it. Encouraging a non-believer, encouraging somebody who is not a Christian can make the difference of whether they listen to you or not. You know how, how much we must miss by failing to speak words of life to one another. Words that build one another up. Words that make the difference in another's life between hope and despair. And so by all means... By all means, do not hesitate. Never hesitate to speak a word of encouragement. Never hesitate to write a word of encouragement. What have you got to lose? Absolutely nothing, but a lot to gain. Tell others what you appreciate about them. More importantly, spur them on to be faithful to God. Explain to them how you're praying for them. I have two ladies that... That text me from time to time and not only tell me they're praying for me, but they tell me how they're praying for me. It's very encouraging. You can do the same for people. Drop them a text. Write a letter if you still do that. Write them an email. And it's not just to make a fellow brother or sister feel good, though it does do that, but encouragement is a means by which you can be used to keep someone's heart from growing hard and from being deceived by sin. Listen to this excerpt. It's from a book called Practicing Affirmation. Quote, Affirmation or encouragement should not be a self-esteem free for all. Don't affirm any old thing. Don't affirm empty trendiness. Don't stroke the ego. Commend the commendable. Value the valuable. Worship only Christ and then commend his image in people. If anything is commended in others, It is because in some measure they echo, even faintly, the character of the one most worthy of praise, the one from whom all blessings and qualities flow. If anyone but Christ exemplifies any aspect of Christ's likeness, it is because Christ enabled him to do it. I read that because you can always find something to encourage someone about. Every person is made in the image of God. So find that thing which reflects God in their life and encourage it. They're a thankful person. They're a giving person. Maybe you have to look a little bit harder in some people's lives to find that which reflects the image of God, but you can find it and commend that. Thirdly, we observe uh, in this passage that when it comes to building up God's church, that God uses everyone's gifts. God uses everyone's gifts. So though the church in Antioch, it's growing numerically, more people. Barnabas realized something. He realized that he lacked what was needed to take the church to the next level spiritually. Barnabas was an encourager, and he was also a teacher. But he was not the systematic, methodical teacher that Saul was. Barnabas knew he was not the one to take these believers to the next level all by himself. And so we read in verse 25, And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. Barnabas was so sure that he needed Saul's assistance that he traveled a hundred miles to the city of Tarsus to try to find him. That's That's the last place Barnabas heard he was. Maybe I can track him down. And before you start thinking, 100 miles, okay, jump in the car, set your GPS. No, this is 100 miles in the ancient world. This is a long journey. We're talking several months here. And maybe a journey that wouldn't even prove fruitful because Barnabas is just hoping that he finds Paul. But he does. We left Paul back in chapter 9, or Saul, and now a number of years have passed. And what has the Lord been doing? Well, he's been preparing Saul for this next step in his ministry He's now ready to assist Barnabas to build up the church in Antioch. So, verse 26, for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. By himself, Barnabas was not equipped by God to disciple these believers into the deeper truths of God. And that's okay. We each have different gifts. And the wise man or the wise woman recognizes their limitations, and seeks out others to complement what they lack. We all lack something, and we all have abilities and gifts. God designed his church in such a way that that none of us can function alone. No one has every gift and ability. Barnabas could encourage you like nobody's business. I mean, you just felt like you were walking on the air of God's strength after he was done building you up. But Saul, he could come behind And he could dig deep into the lives of these now receptive believers. Because why? The soil of their hearts had been softened by the encouraging showers of Barnabas' words. And so Saul was able, by the grace of God, to come behind with the teaching that the church needed to grow spiritually. With Barnabas' continued assistance, of course. God will not let me and you do it alone. He will not. He purposely designed his church in such a way that we must rely on each other's gifts and abilities if we are to mature spiritually, if we are to grow. You might be a big toe, T-O-E, I did say toe, a big toe hidden away in a shoe. And, and, And the mouth is up there, it's getting all the glory because the mouth is what proclaims what people hear. But the big toe, it is crucial. It's crucial for balancing the body. The big toe carries the most weight of all the toes. It bears about 40% of the load. The big toe is the, the last part of the foot to push off the ground before taking the next step. You can walk without it, but it's not easy, and it takes a major lifestyle adjustment. So the talking mouth up here, it's able to easily get to the place of proclamation because the big toe hidden away down here and the shoe is present and is functioning correctly. Barnabas needed Saul, and Saul needed Barnabas. Another thing to recognize, another thing to recognize is that the call to teach is not only for teachers. I'm not letting you guys off the hook this morning. There is a biblical equipping for those who are specifically called to be in positions of teaching. James speaks of those who teach in this way. James chapter 3, verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. I, as well as any other person in a teaching capacity, must take those words very seriously. I will give an account to God for how I instruct you. But this does not mean that other believers, you are not called to teach others, because as followers of Jesus, God does expect you to teach and instruct others from time to time. That doesn't mean that you'll be in a pulpit or behind a podium. doesn't mean that anyone may ever even call you a teacher, but you will teach others by what you say and by what you do. And as a believer, you represent Jesus, like it or not. I hope you like it, but that's just the fact. Older women teach younger women. That's Titus 2.3. Younger women teach their children. Older men teach younger men. Husbands teach wives. If husbands are wise, they will allow their wives to teach them too. Even if only through example should the husband not give hearing to his wife's counsel. That's 1 Peter 3.1-2. And everyone, everyone is instructed by Jesus to make disciples. Teaching them to observe all that he commanded us. Matthew 28. You are a teacher as a follower of Jesus, if only by example. That means you have a responsibility. And when every member of Christ's body accepts this responsibility, something interesting occurs. We find it at the end of verse 26. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. This is the first time verse 26, in the Bible, when we see the term Christian used. And the reason, remember up until now, they were followers of the way, or they were believers. But now, the reason we see this term is because it was not the church that came up with it, but it was a term used to describe them by those outside of the church. The term Christian, know what it means? simply means to follow Christ. And it probably came about because people in Antioch kept hearing the the believers referring to a man named Jesus, who they said is the Christ. And as I pointed out earlier, the word Christ did not make much sense to them. Didn't mean much. And so they said, those are Christians. Those are Christ followers. It's like how the uh, followers of John Wesley became known as Wesleyans. John Wesley did not coin that phrase. And those who learned directly from him did not originally call themselves Wesleyans. But all lookers, people on the outside said, those are followers of Wesley, hence Wesleyans. Christian was not not a criticism, not necessarily. And to the believers in Antioch, it could certainly be worn as a badge of honor. Think about it. They were being accused of imitating Jesus. I'll take that. I'll take that accusation any day. And that is exactly what the three areas that we have looked at today revealed to us. And so in summary, God uses unnamed people to build up his church. God uses encouragement to build up his church. And God uses your gifts and abilities to build up his church. Whether you are ever well-known among men does not matter. What does matter is that if you step out and encourage others, and you do your part as God leads to teach others his truth, then you will reflect Jesus. You will not only be called a Christian in name, but you will be a Christian in reality. Jesus said, follow me. That first That first command, that first word, that first exhortation he gave to his disciples, follow me. Which, by the way, is the first command he gave to you as well. If you're doing that, then this is what people will see. Your life will simply reveal the life of Jesus. Follow me, imitate me, do what I do. Matthew chapter 10, verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher. However, before you can reveal the life of Christ, you must identify with the death of Christ. Jesus died because you failed to follow him. Jesus died because you failed to reflect his life. Jesus died because you failed to live up to the righteous standard of God's holy expectation. And I did too. Jesus died to take your failures upon himself on the cross, your disobedience, your sin, your insufficiency. And he received in his body the judgment of God against such things that displease and grieve and anger the heart of God. And when you place your trust in Jesus, believing his death is sufficient to cover your failures and your sins, You also, at the same time, receive his resurrected life into yourself. It's a package deal. It's simultaneous. Jesus died for me. I believe that. And I receive his life into me. If you identify with Jesus' death by faith, God identifies you with his life. And it is the life of Jesus that will be evident all over your life. People will say, I don't know who this Christ is. More and more so people are saying that in our society as we continue to kind of speed down this post-Christian society that we're now living in. People will say, I don't know who this Christ is, but that is his follower. That is a Christian. And when those who don't understand are able to see a reflection of another in your actions and hear another in your words, then it will be enough that you have become like your teacher. Let's pray. Father, we have been challenged this morning. You've shown us, Lord, that that you have placed in our hands the ability, the power, the means by which to to build up your church, to build one another up. Lord, we don't want great names. We want you to know our name. And Father, we ask that you would help us to encourage one another daily and to use the gifts and abilities that you've given each of us because that is what you've purposed to do. So we surrender to you this morning, to your will and to your purposes. And Father, just ask that you'd help us to be faithful. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.